I'm going to preach from a single verse with my scarf on. And uh, I hope this verse is going to warm us up. Um, just thank you for your warm welcome. I mean, so many people greeted us so warmly as we, as we came into the, uh, the school this morning. And just feel that this, this is a wonderful church. And, uh, and I'm not just flattering you, but you're wonderful. You're just so wonderful. No, but th- there really is a sense of friendship and grace that is on this community. So we know it's the last term and you may be a student and you're about to go off and so on. But join this church. E- even if you know there's a home church somewhere else where you're originally from, it is so much better for you to actually join and become part of a community, even if you know in a couple of years' time, and even though it's towards the end of the year and all of that, is it towards the end of the year? Nearly, isn't it? We're nearly in August. So I would just encourage you to consider that Exploring Membership course. Um, But thank you so much. Joe, my wife, and I are, as you can hear, originally from the UK, um, and we are leading a, a team at Jubilee Community Church in Cliff Street in the center of the city of Cape Town. Um, we are fostering babies like there's no tomorrow um, because we only had four of our own. And uh, sleep, what is sleep? There will be time for sleep. Um, no, but it's a wonderful thing to do. So if, uh, if Joe has to get up because I wake the baby up, by raising my voice or something like that. Don't worry. This is the verse we're going to look at. I'll put my timer on. This is the verse we're going to look at. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. It is an amazing verse. Let me just read it to you. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. And I've called this message, love permanently bestowed. Love permanently bestowed. And I've got just a few points. First point is this, behold, behold. John, the gospel writer, continually invites us to behold through his gospel, the fourth gospel, and through these three letters, and actually in the book of Revelation, which is the last book in the New Testament, he is once again inviting us to see. And there's this sense of wonder, of almost disbelief at what he is beholding. It's characteristic of all his writing. And if you and I went back to the time of Christ in a time machine, if we got in H.G. Wells's time machine and, and went back and saw some of what Jesus did and listened to his teaching, our lives would be forever characterized by wonder. And that's what you get the sense of when you, when you read John, whether in the gospel or in his letters. It's like, we saw him. We hands handled him. We touched him. We were there. We were there. We beheld his glory, he says, in the opening chapter of his gospel. We beheld his glory. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty, says Peter. Even Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, who sentenced Christ to death, um, 
said when the soldiers pushed Jesus out in front of the shouting crowd dressed in a purple robe with a crown of thorns pressed down upon his head, bleeding, having been beaten. He pushed him out and he said, Behold, behold the man. Behold the man. And what are we looking at? Well, we're looking at a bruised and battered young Jew, utterly powerless at the mercy of the mob, at the mercy of Pontius Pilate, the, the, the governor. But actually, what are we looking at? We're looking at the precious Son of God who, like a lamb led to the slaughter, behaves with perfect trust, perfect submission to the will of his Father. Why? To bring us to God, to reconcile us to God. Behold the man. And in our text here, John is once again asking us to see something and to see something wonderful. The modern translations have see as well. The NIV has see. John is inviting us. You know how it is. There's a deeper kind of seeing. You can see something and then you see it. You can hear something and then you, you really hear it. Something that could really change your life. This kind of seeing, this kind of beholding can put perseverance into your soul can turn a day of trial into a day of tenderness and surrendered worship to God. If you behold, this beholding, if, if you remember to do it, can transform how you see yourself, how you regard yourself, whether in the midst of hardship and difficulty or whether you're enjoying a season of peace and provision, whether you're fighting for every step forward in the journey or whether you feel you're just like there's momentum and you're taking great strides behold behold this when you're celebrating behold this when you're discouraged or when you're downcast behold this when you're under pressure behold this when you're misunderstood by others and your motives are being misinterpreted behold this behold this always there are many things in life in which you, can, which you can see, which you can look at, which you can behold. John says, behold this, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. NIV has, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. And that's, that's wonderful. This is lavished love. The Father has lavished his love upon us. I'll come back to that because the Greek wording here for manna is speaking of a foreignness. It's the foreignness of God's love toward us. He's asking us to step back and consider how radically different is this love from any other kind of love that we've experienced. Behold, what manner is literally, behold, from what country? From what far-off place in Greek? That's what it means literally. What, where is this from? But what this, this, this quality of the love that the Father's given. It's the same word that Matthew uh, <coughs> uses in the gospel account. You remember the story, the disciples are in the boat, there's a storm, Jesus is asleep. 
um, and we read the disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. These are experienced. Some of them are experienced fishermen. We're going to drown. And Jesus replied, this is such a lovely word, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? And then he got up and rebuked the wind and the waves and it was completely calm. You don't just have to endure circumstances, by the way. You can, you can appeal to Jesus and he can speak into the storm and bring calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man? King James Version, what manner of man is this? It's the same, it's the same word. What manner of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Christian, this is a kind of love that is like no other. Behold, what, what manner of love have you received? This is a faithful, deep, abiding love, utterly unlike the love of friends, utterly unlike the love of a husband or wife or anything else you could think of. This kind of love will carry you through into eternal security. When you find this kind of love, this manner of love, look! When you find this kind of love, look into it, behold it, examine it, dive in, plunge in to the oceans of it. Don't skim past it. I mean, that, it's I, I, I do love reading through the whole Bible. I've done it for years and years and years. Um, but Spurgeon said this wonderful thing, and sometimes it's good to just focus on each word in a verse. He said, he also was a great Bible reader, but he said, I would rather, in the morning, in his own devotions, I would rather let my soul lay a soak in a single verse than rinse my hands in a whole chapter. Isn't that great? Now, it's good to get the big picture. We need the big picture. But I would rather let, you know, how often do we let our souls soak <laughs> in a single promise of God until we've really got it? That's what we're trying to do this morning. When you find this kind of love, explore its treasures. There's a, a ghost town in Namibia called Coleman's Cop. Anyone been there? Wow, yeah, I haven't been, but I've seen the pictures. Is that good enough? <laughs> Probably more convenient. So it wasn't anything. And railway tracks were just running through the desert, and a railway worker called Lewala uh, suddenly saw this large, shiny thing and picked it up, and it was a diamond. He knew immediately that he'd found something special and he kept it for a couple of days and didn't know what to do and in the end he went and told the railway manager, a German guy called Stauch and um, basically they looked some more and there were diamonds, diamonds in the desert everywhere and of course this led to a, a, a mini gold rush, a, well, not a gold rush, but a, a mini rush on the town. And buildings were put up, huts. And the whole thing was built up. Finally, electricity was added in. And 
I mean, they, they, they were breaststroking in the sand, finding diamonds. There's a story of one guy who found so many diamonds, every pocket, every possible place he could put diamonds. He came back to the town with his mouth full of diamonds. It was, and of course there was a lot of corruption in all of that as well, and, or inequality, let's say, uh, in all of that as well. Um, and actually, I, 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 I preached about Coleman's Copper. I used this as an illustration uh, a, a while ago, and a guy came running out after the, ser the service and said, I'm Stau, I'm his great-grandson. <laughs> anyway, I just thought I'd share that because it came into my mind, and it's, it's one of those mornings. Um, but it was an amazing thing. Like he said, that's exactly what happened. You got the story. They found treasure. And when they found treasure, they dug and dug and searched and searched until they'd found the very, very last diamond. And now the reason why it's a ghost town that's a tourist spot is that the desert is reclaiming the town. And so there are these tremendous pictures of kind of Saharas in the lounge you know, where you've got this, this sand that's kind of taking back the, uh, the concrete buildings. It's like civilization is being slowly taken over again. It's a little bit like Shelley's uh, Ozymandias. It's kind of taking back what was once looked so strong. But the point is, they found treasure and they looked. And when John says, behold what manner of love the Father has given us, it is a massive discovery. You may have been brought up in a Christian family and think, oh yeah, God loves us. Yeah, we know God loves us. It is a huge discovery and the world knows nothing about it. They, well, you know, I didn't even know there was a God. I, 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 in fact, I knew that there wasn't a God, let alone a God of love. This is a massive discovery that you and I as Christians should absolutely behold and dwell on and meditate on and get the very last. I mean, it's better treasure than you would ever find in Coleman's Cop, and it won't run out. There's a city actually that's going to go on forever and ever, the church of God, the bride of Christ. We have found treasure we have found treasure. Do you realize what you've got here? It's amazing. You can find diamonds in the desert and think they've fallen from the sky, but you've found real treasure, better than riches, better than gold or jewels in Christ. The unsearchable riches of Christ are yours. Behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us. Listen to John Owen, a 17th century Puritan, a chaplain, or the chaplain to Oliver Cromwell, he's just writing some prose. I don't know if it's going to go up on the screen, but I've, written, I've kind of put it down in verse. This is classic 17th century English Christianity. Lovely in his person. Lovely in his birth and incarnation. Lovely in the whole course of his life. Lovely in his death. Lovely in his whole employment lovely in the glory and the majesty, lovely in all these supplies of grace, lovely in all the tender care, power, and wisdom, lovely in all his ordinances, that is, 
worship and breaking of bread and so on, preaching, lovely and glorious in the vengeance he takes. You wouldn't get that now if that was being written now. We'd drop that one out, leave that one out. Lovely in the pardon that he has purchased. He is altogether lovely. You found him. You found him. He's here and he's yours. So then thirdly, this is permanently bestowed love. This is bestowed love. Behold what manner of love the Father has placed upon us, bestowed upon us, given to us. One Greek word study says the perfect tense here is used to indicate that the gift becomes a permanent possession of the recipient. God has placed his love upon the saints in the sense that they have become permanent objects of his love. Permanent objects of his love. Now, that may seem difficult to understand. Many of us have been let down by people we trusted, who we thought loved us, perhaps. Um, we may have experienced the confusion, the trauma of, of parents splitting apart, and what seemed so stable and permanent uh, was broken, or you may have experienced any, any numbers of types of unkindness or difficulty, stress in your life relationally, and sometimes those things can become the kind of background music in your life. You may live with an underlying sense of abandonment or the possibility of abandonment, nothing ever seeming to be solid or stable or real. You might feel as a result of that, you've got to fight for everything. If you don't fight for it, then no one else is fighting for you. But I've got good news for you today. <laughs> There's a love that has been permanently bestowed upon you by God. It, it is so much better than hoping for an experience of pleasure and romance in love that comes and goes and then the heart is broken. This is permanently bestowed love. When we come to Christ, we find a different kind of love. We find a powerful love placed upon us. We find a love that existed before we began. So strong, so powerful. His love has been from everlasting to everlasting. You discover and then you behold that before you were even born, God said, mm, I love that one. He sets his love upon you before you were. It's a wonderful thing. Let me read some verses to prove this to you. Psalm 139, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. And as to Jeremiah, so to every true believer in Jesus Christ, I chose you before I formed you in the womb. I set you apart before you were born. Jesus said, just as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Remain in my love. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to bear fruit. Isn't that a wonderful thing? 
Because I don't know what your experience was, but for me, the process is, well, there's no God and all the rest of it. And then I, I pick up the Gospel of John or I meet someone who said, I found the truth. I'm, no, that can't be right. They must have really tricked you or something. Or, you know, what did they give you? Uh, you know, in my kind of condescending way, you, you, you're not very good at reading. I'm better at reading. I'll read this and I'll come back and I'll convince you and I'll show you the contradictions and all the fictional, mythic, fairy tale aspects of whatever it is you're into. And, and then you'll come to your senses and you'll come back into the world. You'll repent of all this nonsense. You'll come back into the world. Uh, something else happened. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> here we are. But... Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I can't even remember what the point I was going to make. I read the gospel. I uh, was amazed at the Jesus character there, unlike what I'd expected, you know, some, you know, terribly, you know, wispy, wishy-washy Jesus, and um, became slowly convinced. Um, but even in that moment, I had this sense of, and it sounded so cringy to me, like, Am I being called? Oh, am, am I being called? You know, and, but I, I just had this kind of weird authenticity about it. Is this happening in my head? You know, I came to that point. Is this just happening in my mind? Now, I knew it wasn't this, this non-Christian friend of mine. I mean, this Christian friend of mine who I think was a non-Christian because he's still taking drugs and sleeping with his girlfriend. I didn't notice any of that, by the way. I, I just thought, no, this isn't true. It can't be. So, but I didn't have any further conversations with him after he gave me the Gospel of John. So my argument was with the book. And the book doesn't answer back. It just says the same thing again. It's a good strategy for those who are argumentative like I was. And, and so I, was I making this decision? I am... You know, and, and for most of us who have become Christians out of a, of a kind of crystal clear type non-Christian background, it's like, yeah, I looked at the evidence, and there's, there's good people and good friends and all that, and then I chose and became a Christian. And you think, and that's wonderful, and you become a Christian, and then your sins are forgiven. Wow, that was like a bonus, <laughs> you know? Because for me, I wasn't like, I didn't go through this process of being convinced of my sin. I knew I was a sinner. I was particularly good at that. So it wasn't like, it was like, oh, I'm resisting this. I'm not a sinner. I'm a really good person. No, no, yeah, I'm totally a sinner and I'm not ashamed of it. And so it wasn't like conviction of sin and oh, how can I be forgiven? It was more like a discovery of who Jesus is and is, is he trustworthy? That's the critical thing because you won't, lifestyle change would just become argumentation for you unless you've got to the point where you realize Christ is trustworthy and therefore I surrender to him. Anyway, are we choosing this? Are we stepping forward? Well, yeah, yeah, of course we are. This isn't, ultimately it's not happening against our will. We are making a decision to follow Christ. And then once we enter in, it's better than that. You didn't choose me. I, I thought I did. No, you didn't choose me. I chose you. I chose you and appointed you to bear fruit for me, to be my disciple, to be a follower of mine. It's even better. Can you believe it? Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. I'm going to run out of time here, aren't I? So let me get back. 
Uh, Jeremiah 31, 3, the Lord has appeared of old to me saying, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Come on, speak it to yourself. Let your soul soak in it. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I know you irritate people. I know you get, get it wrong. I know you're not as good as you project and all of that. I have loved you with an everlasting love. You just can't put me off, says the Lord. I'm going to love you and I'm going to keep loving you. I'm going to love you to life. I'm going to love you to perfection. I'm going to love you right into heaven. I'm going to love you into eternity. I've loved you from eternity before you even existed through to eternity. Forever and ever I have loved you. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Oh, is that enough? Is that enough for you to see that you, this love that God has for you personally is permanently bestowed. I mean, we can, we can do another hour if you want. He loves you. You know, I don't understand why, why Christians are so eager to say, oh, no, 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 you can lose your salvation. Yeah, you can. Why, why, the, why are you arguing that? Why, why, the, why the keenness to, to lose your this, this nonsense? No, you are loved. Surely, goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. You know, in Nehemiah, did I preach in, on Nehemiah here once? No, I did. Yeah, Sam Ballot and who's the other guy? Tobiah, Tobias. They're following him around. You know, they're complaining. If you build that, a fox would oh, fall in this rubbish. Who do you think you are anyway? Sam Ballant and Tobias following him around all the days of his life. The Bible says, surely goodness and loving kindness shall follow me all the days of my life. It's wonderful. It's yours. And, and he says confidently, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. How do you get that kind of confidence? How do you get that kind of assurance? Even though he knew he was a sinner. Because of what God's done. Because of what God's done. Brother, sister, behold what manner of love the Father has given to you, placed upon you, permanently bestowed upon you. Fourthly, is this my last point? I cannot remember. We are permanently and everlastingly the children of God. I mean, it just gets better and better, doesn't it? We are permanently and everlastingly the children of God. Now, the King James translators chose to use the term they said, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called sons of God. It's actually not the word for sons, but you can understand how they did it because um, there is, it is the word for children, but they, they chose to use the word sons because in doing so, they, they were highlighting a powerful equivalence that we see in other parts of the New Testament. The equivalence is essentially this. Just as permanently, just as everlastingly as Jesus, the Son of God, is in the Father's love, so all the children of God are also in the Father's love. As He is, so you are. There's an equivalence there. It's the same level of security. Now, it was a wrong translation, and they've They've corrected the English now, which is better. But that was the thinking. So it's like saying, essentially what you're saying is, 
when Christ appears, I will appear not with my head hanging. I will be as secure in my own salvation as a son or a daughter of God as Jesus is in his sonship. It's that level of equivalence. And it's crazy, isn't it? It's incredible. I am, I am as secure in my sonship before God. And we are as secure in our, there's no such word as childrenship, but in our sonship, if we can get everyone in, all included, or as the bride, let me do the other, the other gender, as the bride, we are as secure together as the bride of Christ as he is the Son of God. There is an equivalent security in your salvation. It's a wonderful thing. Right to the Hebrews puts it like this, for it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the originator of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. For this reason, he is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing your praise. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. You are secure. Jesus is the perfect Savior who through his suffering on the cross sanctified us and reconciled us to God so that we who were once enemies are now adopted as sons. That's like real sons. Um, we're learning about adoption. You know, you don't say, this is my, we've had two premature children. One was two months premature. When I'm introducing Jess, who's now 24 or something like that, Joe would know the exact number, but, um, you know, she's 24, 25, um, you know, this is, this is our premature child, yeah? and this is our normal child over here who wasn't premature at all. Bizarrely, she's the brain box, actually, so that threw that whole thing out. But, you know, when you're adopted, you are a son or a daughter of God. You've been adopted. You're in. You're absolutely secure. You're privileged now. We are privileged now to be called the children of God. God. And that is what we are. The best of the world's religions could just offer us to be servants, maybe. Devotees, worshippers of this or that idol or this or that deity. The true God, the real God, the true and the living God calls us children. Ha! What manner of love has the Father bestowed on us that we should be called not just servants, not just devotees, children, children of God. And when we pray, we always ought to pray, our Father in heaven. That never, never changes. Whatever you've done, whatever you did, he's still your Father. You cannot undo that. He's your Father and he's your Father forever. Hallelujah. Cherished and loved by him. In 1654, we're going back to the Puritans again, the English Puritans. Thomas Brooks published a, a wonderful book. It's a book about assurance. And of course, he called it heaven on earth. Because if you have full assurance of your salvation, of your, that you're right with God, that he's for you, that he's with you, 
it is heaven on earth. It's the closest thing. It's a foretaste of heavenly glory by the Spirit. He says this. This is a bit of his introduction. I had to cut it short. It goes on and on and on. And I had to cut the quote somewhere. So it, it's going to end mid-sentence. I don't know what's happening with this thing. Anyway, um, he says, you are those worthies of whom... Okay, now let me start again. Beloved in our dearest Lord, you are those worthies of whom this world is not worthy. You are the princes who prevail with God. You are those excellent ones in whom is all Christ's delight. You are his glory. You are his picked, culled, prime instruments which he will make use of to carry on his best and greatest work against his worst and greatest enemies in these latter days. You are a seal upon Christ's heart. You are engraved on the palms of his hands. Your names are written upon his heart as the names of the children of Israel were upon Aaron's breastplate. You are the epistle of Christ. You are the anointed of Christ. You have the spirit of discerning. You have the mind of Christ. You have the greatest advantages and the choicest privileges to enable you to taste truth, to apply truth, to defend truth, to uphold truth, and to prove truth. And therefore, to whom should I dedicate this book but to yourselves? You have the next place to Christ in my heart. Your good, your gain, your glory, your edification. Go and buy the book. It's a great book. It's an amazing thing. He's like in raptures. Do you love the church? Christ loves the church. He loves the church. He loves us. He genuinely loves us. And he wants the best for us. Do you know how loved you are? Do you know how loved you are? I'm banging on about it again and again. We need to behold the truth of this. He loves you. You're his precious child. He loves his church. He loves his people. He loves his bride. The Song of Songs it gives us hints of the depths of Christ's love for us. Because Christ is overcome with love for us. In, uh, there's a place in the Song of Solomons where we read in chapter 6, where the lover says to the bride, Turn your eyes from me, for they have overcome me. It's like, a, it's just, it's too much. Spurgeon preaching on that verse said the eyes of Christ's chosen ones still overcome him he, he is overcome with love for you it's a wonderful thing Jesus is in love with his church that's a fact that's a truth we can become too familiar with all these things we're too kind of Strategic, we've got this happening, that happening, and it's all good, it's all good. But don't get tricked into boredom with the things of God. Don't get tricked into boredom by distraction with trinkets and rubbish and peripheral things. Don't get tricked into thinking, well, I know all this, I know Christianity, I need some help in my life. Listen, child of God, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon you that you should be called a child of God. Let the loving gaze of Christ silence the wrangling and the jangling and the arguing in your own mind. 
Let the loving gaze of Christ purify your soul. Let the love of God you know, plunge into the ocean of God's love. Let his forgiveness flow into your hearts. He loves you. He really loves you. And he loves me. It's an amazing, an amazing truth. Look into the loving face of Christ. And as you do, as you behold him, you will be transformed from glory to glory. Let's be like the bride in the Song of Songs, where we read, who is this? I, I, I touched on this with the leaders last time. Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? The, the love of God means that you lean on him. And when you're leaning on someone, you're transferring your weight to them. So in a sense, when we became Christians, we transferred our sin to him through the cross. Transfer the weight of your troubles onto him. Transfer the weight of your worries and your cares onto him. The gospel doesn't make us you know, spring, out, spring out of you know, disaster like nothing happened. The gospel enables us to know that we're the beloved and we lean on him. And that's how we emerge out of the wilderness. If you need to emerge out of the wilderness, you emerge by leaning on your beloved. We need to do it. Behold, look and keep looking. See this. What manner of love, what quality of love the Father has given you. What love from another place. What love the Father has permanently bestowed upon you, resting upon you all the days of your life now. There is a love from God that is permanently set on you that we should be called children of God. Permanently, everlastingly children of God. And that is what we are. Amen. Amen. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we are stunned, stung by love for you. We are amazed at the totality of your affection for us in Christ. We're amazed that you continue unrelentingly to love us, to have mercy on us, to give good things to us, to be for us and by us and with us. And I pray, Lord Jesus, for any here, and for all of us actually, for any here who particularly needed to be reminded of that fact, but for all of us to thoroughly take it in and even as we come now to break bread together lord we we are doing so because love has broken into our lives a love that stunned the universe in the depth of its sacrifice a love that reaches to the ends of the earth a love that's changed my heart 
to him who loved us and gave himself for us. And we pray, Lord, as we partake in the, uh, the bread and the juice here, that we would do so by a living faith, feeding on that very truth and growing by it in Jesus' name. Amen.